Coming up on Art Palace. How do you guess it? How do you guess it? And how can you possibly say what you're going to collect is going to be fit some kind of popular image 10, 20 years from now? Welcome to Art Palace, produced by Cincinnati Art Museum. This is your host, Russell Eyrig. Here at the Art Palace, we meet cool people and then talk to them about art. Today's cool people are collectors Wes Cowan, Theodore Gantz, and Todd Swarmstead. The following was recorded live as a part of our In Conversation series on May 18th, 2017. I apologize that the sound quality is not quite up to our usual quality because it was recorded live, but honestly, I sound the worst and I barely speak. Uh, well, welcome everyone. My name is Russell Eyrig. I am the Assistant Director of Interpretive Programming here at the Cincinnati Art Museum, and welcome to In Conversation, the Art of Collecting. My guests tonight are Wes Cowan, Theodore Gantz, and Todd Swarmstead. Wes Cowan is the Principal Auctioneer and Executive Chairman of Cowan's Auctions of Cincinnati. As the largest fine arts auction house in Ohio, Cowan's has been recognized by the uh, influential, oh, now I'm not going to say that right. Blue and Art Info. Thank you. As one of the top 250 auction houses in the world, from their Cincinnati base, Cowan's holds more than 40 auctions annually featuring fine art and antiques and collectibles. Wes holds a PhD in anthropology and oversees a staff of 40 with offices in Cincinnati, Cleveland, and Denver. Theodore Gantz is a sculptor who has worked as a commissioned artist in Cincinnati since the 1960s. He has been collecting art, antiquities, and books since college. He attended the Art Academy of Cincinnati in the 1960s and was introduced to collecting by the museum curators who also taught art history. In the 1970s, he obtained a master's in art history with a specialty in the decorative arts, and today his home is furnished with antiques and sculptures with a focus on the sculptor Hiram Powers and his contemporaries. Todd Swarmstead is the founder of the American Sign Museum and currently serves as its executive director. Before that, he was the vice president slash new product development for ST Media Group International, recognized as the premier educator, authority, and voice for the visual communications markets. He served as publisher of the company's six trade publications and book division from 1992 to 1999, and was editor of the company's flagship publication, Signs of the Times magazine. Todd's great-grandfather was the editor of the first issue of the monthly Signs of the Time magazine from May 1906. So welcome, everybody. So this is going to be very casual, obviously, um, and so feel free to just, if you get ideas, take you places, but I thought we would just start by kind of going down the line and hearing a little bit about what you collect specifically and how that started. So um, you want to start? Uh, oh, sure. Um, I started collecting when I was in school um, and uh, slowly... I spent a great deal of time in Italy, and so I started buying particularly there. And um, furniture, things that interested me, uh, I had a very limited budget. And uh, over the years, uh, as I acquired household furnishings, mostly antique, 19th century, Empire, Biedermeyer, that style, 
um, I became more and more focused on an interest in uh, sculpture, which I am a working sculptor. I work as a commission artist. And so uh, I slowly started buying sculpture, became more and more aware. But I've also been very interested in doing fundamental research on everything that I've found. So um, as an art historian, I enjoy ferreting out things that really aren't identified. I don't go to dealers and uh, acquire at the top of the market. I'm interested in finding the things. And over the last 30 years, American sculpture has not been, until maybe in the, maybe 10 years ago, there was more interest in, in collecting it. Uh, there was a lot of material just floating around through secondhand sources. And um, you could pick up very interesting things, often unknown. Um, and it was interesting for me to do the, to sort of figure out the, where it came from, uh, what its history was, often bought things that I didn't know who the artist was, and was able to sort of track down who those individuals were and build a, a fundamental folio on each item in terms of, of what it is. And uh, Wes, you want to give us a... <laughs> Well, I, you know, I've always been a collector. I, um, I have, I guess I'm genetically uh, predisposed to be a collector. Uh, my grandfather uh, lived in Manhattan, owned an advertising agency or public relations agency in Manhattan, and he apparently uh, went to Park Burnet every week and was buying constantly. I never knew him that well, but uh, apparently whatever he had genetically, I got part of because uh, I, from a very young age, was collecting fossils or natural history specimens or, you know, arrowheads. And uh, as a child um, growing up in Louisville, Kentucky, that was my first passion, discovering um, uh, prehistoric artifacts. And uh, that led me to uh, going to antique shops all up and down uh, Bardstown Road in, in Louisville, where I, um, um, where I lived. And I would ride my bike and uh, was asking these antique dealers for you know, prehistoric artifacts if they had any. And uh, you know, I would buy them when I could because they were not very expensive and I used my allowance money to do it. And, then I started buying uh, Bavarian hand-painted china when I was a kid. Don't ask me why. Uh, it was like the, you know, the craziest thing. And uh, you know, all the antique dealers saw this kid coming, and so they would give me special deals. <clears throat> By the time I got to college, um, I really was not. I was more focused on uh, uh, academia and uh, um, really stopped collecting antiques, although I still had some, but um, I, um, uh, by the time I had graduated with my BA and MA, and, and I was uh, working on my dissertation at the University of Michigan, uh, and I tell this story over and over again, like many people who are writing their dissertations, you know, I was looking for an excuse not to write my dissertation, and I started going to antique shops in southeastern Michigan, and I discovered 19th century photography. Uh, at the time, in the late 70s, antique dealers had no idea what this stuff was, and you could go in and there would be a basket of old photographs in their shop. And So I was buying these incredibly great, or at least I thought, 
windows into American history, these vernacular photographs, for relatively uh, small amounts of money, a dollar, five dollars. And uh, one day I, uh, I had been in a shop and uh, there was a guy or a couple guys in there sort of watching me go through a bin of photographs and I paid for my purchase and walked out and they, they followed me out and one of the guys said, I saw the, the, the photograph that you bought, um, would you sell it to me for $50? And I said, hey, sure, here it is. You know, I'd paid like a dollar for it. So I said, this is terrific. <laughs> um, and uh, that led me to really start focusing on 19th century photography. And by the time I started teaching uh, at Ohio State uh, in Columbus, I had a pretty nice little sideline selling 19th and early 20th century photography. Um, I was very quickly drawn from the, uh, from the antique shops. I started going to shows where uh, dealers were setting up and specialized in 19th century photography and uh, got a pretty serious uh, Jones for collecting 19th century 3D stereo view cards. And I collected those pretty hard for about 15 years and um, then realized that, you know, uh, as my auction business grew, I started seeing more and more great um, three-dimensional objects that uh, you know, I became pretty attracted to. And, uh, the stereo view hobby uh, went by the wayside because I realized that these were just in a drawer all the time and I never really, you know, I'd open a drawer up every few weeks and take them out and put them in a, in a viewer and look at them, but they weren't things that I was living with. And uh, so the stereo view hobby uh, collecting uh, went, went by the wayside about, uh, I don't know, about 15 years ago. And uh, my wife and I began... Uh, collecting uh, 19th century and early 20th, 20th century folk art um, with a sort of a, a we, we're trying to focus on um, uh, Ohio and the Midwest. And uh, that's what we still collect today. So the stereo views uh, were sold uh, uh, two years ago and uh, the Bavarian China was sold many, many, many years ago. So I'm, I'm just left with folk art now. Okay. <laughs> And Todd? Yeah, I, I'm with Wes. I think that there's a, a, a psychology to collectors. I think whatever it is that makes you a collector is, is, um, could be a, a subject of, of, of study, of research. <laughs> we need to dissect your brain. Yes, for better or worse. I, I don't know what it is, but um, I was trying to, when you were asking the question, I was trying to think back. I collected pop bottles back in the day for the two cents that they were worth. But a friend and I would go out on our bikes with backpacks and collect these pop bottles. And we would, um, you couldn't cash them in at a pony keg for money, but you could give them to your mom who took them to Kroger's and they would give them two cents. So we took all that money and we um, would, would save the money and we would buy postage stamps for our postage stamp collections. So we turned one collection, <laughs> you know, one habit, into another habit as a collection. And, you know, we did the usual, I mean, I collected coins a little bit, but mostly stamps. And I, um, you know, trying to trace my, my collections as Wes was doing, you know, how you move and you get tired of that and you move on to something else. Um, 
I, uh, I, I went and went to school, liberal arts school, and um, took a lot of history, ended up at the family uh, business, which was tr trade magazines, and the flagship magazine being a sign magazine. Worked there probably a little more than a quarter century, number 25, 28 years, and there wasn't a sign museum anywhere. And um, I'd spent a lot of time in sign shops. I um, had an appreciation of the craft of making signs, whether it was neon or hand-painted or gold leaf or whatever. And I had this history, Ben, I had taken a lot of history. Um, and I got the idea one night to start a sign museum. Um, there were some things going on at the family business, as, as there are in family businesses. And, and I was looking for other avenues. And I called up some mentors of mine, um, some in the sign industry, some not. Um, one in particular was a uh, 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 Steve Eisner, very famous um, architect out of Venturi Scott Brown, wrote a very famous book, Learning from Las Vegas. Um, called him up and got some other guys involved, and, and they said, sounds like a great idea, why don't you start it? And so I did. Went to my family, they provided some uh, seed money to get started, and um, I guess 18 years later we have a we have a museum, and um, it wasn't my collection turned into a museum, which would be a logical conclusion. It's, but, but they are all my babies. I collected them. You know, I feel like I own them. I don't. We're a 501c3, and people come and think, you know, they don't always understand 501c3s, that I don't own these. Um, but um, it, uh, I think it was meant to be for me because I was that collector and I had an interest in history. Um, and there was this void or a niche that was untapped or, and just kind of went for it. And I, I still enjoy doing it. And, um, so did you know, uh, you know once you started uh, accumulating these signs and restoring them and, and looking at the, did, then did you, um, did your heart start to go to pitter-patter when you, when you saw a new sign or, you know, somebody sent you a picture and you said, oh, man, I got to have that. We got to get that for the museum. Well, I didn't really know what I was doing and starting a museum, quite honestly. I just, the way I learned is I just jumped in and started doing it, basically. And then I went to um, the AAM annual conference, the American Association of Museums, and tried to learn. I knew I needed a, a database or something to manage the collection. I didn't know it was called collection management. I called it cataloging. Same thing, and was looking for software to do that. And I, I it's um, there is that that sense which I'm all three of us probably have of finding that piece. Mine happens to be sometimes pretty large and heavy, and sometimes sometimes not. But I don't know what that thrill is. That's a part of that psychology I was talking about of the collector. Um, I, I don't know what it is, but I I know when people have it. Yeah, three of yeah. us. You know, it's just something that you. Well, know. I, you know, I, I I think that if you talk to, you know, and maybe you'd agree, but you know, you're you you love to research things, and I do too. But you know, many collectors, it's the thrill of the hunt and acquiring the thing that is the that they get the biggest charge from. And I see this, of course, in my business, in the auction business. It's you know, you get this and you bring it home and you put it on a shelf or you hang it up or whatever, and then it's on to the next thing. And that's sort of the, the, 
the classic definition of the crazed collector. But but I I find that having the object is one thing, but I think all three of us are saying the story behind that object, the personal story. For us in science, it's the family business that's been around uh, um, for uh, generations in some little town in New York. And the business is gone, pushed out by, by franchises, but the history of the family business can remain through that sign. That becomes an icon for that family, family's history. But it's always interesting. To, it's just an object without the history behind it. And I find when people come to the museum, they pick up on that too. They want to hear the story. So it's not just us collectors, you know. It's, yeah, 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 sure. It, it translates, sure. you know, to the general public that may not, may or may not be, you know, that, that collector type. I'm kind of wondering if, if you didn't have that sort of family background with the magazine in that particular subject matter, do you think you would have stumbled into that or would it be something else? Would you still be you think would you be, have started some other museum? Do you think those are interesting questions? But does it matter? <laughs> you know, this is this. I, I really believe that that it was the path that was meant to be. There was this. There was no sign museum, and all this history was going away. And and I just happened to be in that 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 position that could pull it off. You know, so I'm, I'm lucky. We're all lucky that we we have a pursuit like this, you know, that's, that talks about history and, and, and will we'll go on for centuries. Well, and, you know, Ted, I, I would assume that you probably uh, see this as much as anyone, uh, and, and this is what you alluded to with these signs, that the stories behind the signs, in, in my business, I see so many objects that are, that they all have stories, but they're all gone. They're all lost. They're, they're really orphans, uh, in, um, they're material orphans in, 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 uh, in terms of their, the, their historical stories that they could tell. And it's, it's you know, pretty tragic, and we, I see this accelerating now. And then surely oh, and a, number the, of the things a lot I've... of the sculpture that you've seen is just sort of lost. And... Indeed, and... Uh... In some cases, I'm able to construct a history, but uh, um, one of the particular pieces that, are two pieces that I have that are, Hiram Powers was a sculptor that uh, came out of Cincinnati in the 1820s, went to Italy, and in the 1840s did a piece of sculpture called The Greek Slave, which made him in 1850 the most famous sculptor uh, in, the world. in the world. And so he's, and he comes, because he comes from Cincinnati, it was always interesting to me. And I've, he settled in Florence, Italy, where he died in the 1870s. Um, and I have spent a great deal of my life in Florence. Uh, and one day I was in the flea market, and there was a booth that um, was locked. But in the window were these two busts, which were gaudily painted to look like decorative marble. But I looked at them, and I said, I know what this is. And in the house in Florence, I had Hiram Powers' um, catalog resume with all the photographs of everything. Went back, went home that evening, back to Florence, and looked in the book, and there it was. It was Annie Sinton Taft. It was the plaster working model for the marble piece that's at the Taft Museum. And so 
you can imagine I spent the evening worrying when the shop was going to open and what <laughs> I would be able to afford it and all of those sorts of things. What did the dealer know? Um, I mean, it's a flea market. Uh, went back the next day and uh, still wasn't open. I inquired a few of the people next to him. And, oh, he's over in some block or two away. Went over. Oh, yes, they're for sale. They were five or $600 a piece. Uh, I bought them, brought them back. Uh, the plaster is now in uh, the plaster is at the Taft Museum. It's, they have the only museum that has the original plaster and the original marble uh, of a Hiram Powers. Um, but what was interesting was then trying to put together why it was there. And then you, you spend years sort of studying to figure out what happened to his estate. Part of it we know about, but there were parts of it they can account for maybe half of the estate, the rest of it sort of disappeared, and various stories, so that uh, it's in, that becomes interesting. Um, I also own Hiram Power's first piece of sculpture that everyone thought was in the collection of the Miami um, University Art Museum at Oxford, Ohio, and it... Uh, uh, appeared in an auction about 10 years ago. A piece appeared in an auction 10 years ago. Small auction house in, southern, in the south of Manhattan, insignificant auction house. And I looked at it and I kept thinking, it shouldn't be what it is, but it's this piece of sculpture that's at Miami University Museum that wasn't good enough to put in the Hiram Powers show because the curators thought there was something wrong with it. And so... I bought it, nobody bid against me. And then the curator, Julie Aronson from the museum, we took the piece up to Miami, put the two together, and compared them. And obviously the one I had bought was the original. And through a series of researches, we discovered that it had been, that the family who owned it, that this was a portrait of the first president of Miami University, that the board had come to Cincinnati in 1830, commissioned the piece of sculpture. It had been in the university up until the 1870s when the university closed for several years because of financial difficulties. The family took it to their possession, made a copy, put, it, put the copy in the university library, <laughs> kept the original in their home. There was a photograph of it taken in the hallway of their house just about the time of the First World War. You could date it by what was there. And the difference was that the base that the piece of sculpture sat on, the, the sockle, uh, the piece that was at the university, wasn't right. It was never right. That's why it didn't end up in the museum show. The one that I had was the right sockle period-wise and the sockle that appeared in the photograph. So you do all this kind of work, and you try to figure this out. And that's, for me, that's a fun part as much Absolutely. as finding it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, kind of when you were telling that story, I sort of started to think about the way your personal connections with these, the strange happenstance of the locations maybe made it feel more exciting to you as well, like that you're, you, you felt a personal con connection with Hiram Powers because you're both from Cincinnati, and this connection... It, do you think that plays into it and those sort of the, the pieces have a sort of personal resonance with you? Well, yes, the Hiram Powers is 
been of interest because I've lectured on the subject and I've spent a lot of time working with him. But there was a whole school of artists around him uh, that also came through Cincinnati. Many of them also went to Florence. So there's been a group that I've pursued. Yeah. I was just kind of interested in, in sort of those reasons why you get into those particular sort of um, veins, you know. It's a curious thing because when I was a student at the Art Academy in the 60s, I actually wrote a paper on Hierapelt long before I ever went because the Historical Society had the original letters. Mm -hmm. And when I was doing a paper, I went over and I researched this. And so I don't know if it's serendipitous or or what it it is that uh, sort of leads you through these Various steps. Well, I, I, you know, a few years ago, I, and um, I come to a lot of what, what what I do because in my past career as a museum curator and, and an archaeologist, I did a lot of research, and so it comes very naturally to me. And uh, it's it's fun to do this research. I'm sure is you, you know when you're researching the family businesses, or you're researching this artist, and how did this piece end up where? A couple of years ago, uh, I got a call from a professor over at Miami University who was a direct descendant of uh, Meriwether Lewis, of Lewis and Clark. And um, I said, well, it's great to talk to a direct descendant. Why are you calling me? And he said, well, our family owns Meriwether Lewis's pipe tomahawk that um, was exhibited for the sesquicentennial um, exhibition went of the Lewis and Clark expedition, uh, and that's the only time that it ever left the bottom drawer of a of a uh, chest of drawers in Watumpka, Alabama. Watumpka, Alabama. He said, "Yes, long story." But the 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 real story was that the his his maiden aunt had died. The family's maiden aunt had died, and it was the end of the line. And they they had this. This amazing artifact that uh, the family decided, for various reasons, you can't break it up. You can't cut it up into three pieces. They decided that they wanted to sell it, so they approached me to sell the tomahawk, and that launched me on the most amazing expedition of my own, trying to find out who made it. Did he likely carry it on the expedition up the Missouri River and back, and how did it end up in the family? And uh, it, it was, you know, the, the sort of a similar story uh, of the plaster busts of uh, uh, the sentence that ended up in some flea market booth in in, uh, in Florence. And, and it was, to me, um, you know, we, we ended up selling it privately for a lot of money. But to me, the journey of trying to find out how did it, Get into, how did he get to Alabama? Did, did he probably carry this thing up the Missouri River? Um, you know, how do I find out who made it? That, to me, was almost as exciting as selling it, so, or maybe more exciting than selling it. Um, Todd, when you were talking a little bit about the sort of unique challenges of your collection, I was just thinking about that of, of sort of any odd stories or anything that comes from just the sheer size of some of the things you collect and sort of the lengths you've had to go to get some of these things to your museum. Well, I would say our largest item is a 
McDonald's sign, 1963 Huntsville, Alabama. It weighs almost two tons. It's just short <laughs> of it's 3,900 pounds. So yeah, we deal with some pretty big stuff. Um, and it, and I, I guess I have to tell the story. At, at first, I was hesitant to even haul a trailer, and I, I bought a little 10-foot trailer, and that was. I should have bought a 16-foot one. I, as, as soon as I mastered backing up that trailer, then I took on a 16-foot trailer. But um, for signs like that, it was my contacts in the sign industry because I'd worked on the magazine. I knew sign companies all over the country. If they didn't know me specifically, then they certainly knew the magazine, and that was my leverage, my foot in the door. So I have access to crane trucks, which are the big trucks that pick up the signs, all across the country, I can make a phone call, and 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 again, I leverage the heck out of that, to um, so I could acquire some of these big items. Um, that particular McDonald's sign—I don't know if it's a fun story or not. It's fun. It was fun to me. Um, I had um, the sign was an icon in Huntsville, Alabama. Um, the guy wanted to expand his restaurant. He was um, landlocked. The only thing to do was to move the sign forward the street, the town fathers wouldn't allow that. Once you move a sign, it's now subject to current sign code. So it was too large for any sign code that existed, but they wouldn't, so they wouldn't allow a variance. So I tried to buy the sign, and the guy said, well, I'm going to try to save it and put it in a park. About a year and a half later, I get this call from the guy, the same guy, on a Friday about 4 o'clock. He goes, are you still interested in that sign? I said, oh, yes. He said, same price? I go, yeah, it was... We were buying it for, um, I think it was $12,000 or something like that, um, maybe ten. But um, he said, um, okay, well, I, 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 I want to sell it. I said, well, good. He said, the only trick is you have to get it down by Tuesday. <laughs> and I said, I mean, like, like four days from now? <laughs> so it's 4 o'clock on a Friday, you know, and by the time our conversation's over, it's 4.30. So I call a, a, a major sign company I know in, in the South in the southeast, and he, he answered the phone and said, I'd be happy to help you, but you got to wait a couple months because my trucks are doing a bank changeover. They're changing the signs all across the southeast. He goes, no, that's not going to work. And I'm just frantically, you know, calling, calling people. Um, so it's now like 6 o'clock on a Friday, you know, and I'm leaving messages. Obviously, no one's answering the phone. So I'm like, I don't know, what, what am I going to do? So I get a call about 6.15 from this guy. And he says, oh, yeah, I know the sign. I put it up. And I said, well, can you get it down? You know? And he said, sure. And um, I said, but I need it down by Tuesday. <laughs> he, he changed everything around so he could get that sign down on Tuesday. And there was a crowd. Um, the news were there because it's, this was an icon in that town. You know, it had been there 50 years. And there was a crowd out there and it's, you know, and, um, it was it was quite an event to get this signed down, um, but that's probably our, you know, that's one of those stories where it's it, it was meant to be, yeah. because I I was like, it's not going to happen. Do you do you um, find that, for want of a better word, I don't know what you call them, sand guys, sand people that are in the sand business, um, get it what you're doing and appreciate what you're doing or do they just say hey, you know it's just you know the 
one of the things that happened has happened, I guess, with like uh, Antique Roadshow and American Pickers, there is there is certainly an interest in old signs. What I could have got for free in the '70s, I now have to pay for, and, and whereas the value on on fine art, we were talking a little bit earlier about how that's dropping, the value of of signs is going up, and it has been for three three to five years. And I think it's it's a it's, it's a pop culture thing, and I I've been asked why, and I and I can't I can talk around it, I can't pinpoint it, but certainly the media, you know, um, uh, antique roadshow and those kind of shows have have raised you know it's it's an approachable art. I mean, we call it commercial art. Um, there's fine art and there's commercial art, um, but. The old line sign companies, the sign companies that started up after the war, those guys are gone. And the people that are entering the sign industry now are coming from other industries, and they don't have that emotional attachment to the sign industry. Mm -hmm. So we're actually, we're not abandoning the sign industry as far as, as, as support, financial and in-kind, but it's not our, 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 our uh, main source. Of, of donations, of financial support, and, and in-kind support. Um, because things have changed. The sign industry has changed. Yeah. So the old school, yes. The new school, no. Yeah. Long answer to your question, but... Yeah, I, when you were talking about that, the way signs are increasing in value, I even immediately thought, like, I wonder if just, like, the popularity of a TV show like Mad Men or something would contribute to that popular sort of interest in advertisements? I think it's a lot of things. I think it's a reaction to this present attitude of planned obsolescence of consumer products. You know, people want things right now. I think it's a, it's a nostalgia thing. It's a walk down memory lane. It's an appreciation of craftsmanship. Um, Wes's interest in Folk art, for example, I think his appreciation of that is is the same thing. You know, when you when 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 the world that we're in now is a computer image that's here and gone, it's not really real. It's just an image. These are three dimensional things that you can touch and feel, and your sculpture too. It's something you can touch and feel. It's real. It's a reaction to what else is going on in the world. You know, uh, our cyber world, or whatever, however you want to pinpoint that. And it's also a time when, when there was an appreciation of craftsmanship. But now that's kind of, there's a whole movement now. I hear this thing, this movement of makers. I didn't hear that term a year ago. Now maybe it's, I'm, I'm out of touch, but people that fabric, I call them fabricators, but it's called makers now. There's this new interest in makers and maker labs because people are actually producing something that you can touch, feel, you know, graft, and as opposed to, Images that are, you know, like again in cyberspace. I, I think there's a lot of things. There's a lot of things that that you can point to. Again, I can talk around it. I can't <laughs> can't pinpoint it. Well, it's interesting that the, that you mentioned that the, that these that the signs, that from your perspective, they're increasing in value when a lot of the advertising that was made for the inside of the building. Uh, as either a countertop display or a wall display, um, that material uh, had a huge run-up 
in um, in price, like most collectibles in the uh, in the in antiques in the 80s and 90s, and now that material is softened up again, but except at the very top. So uh, you know, a great tin lithograph sign that would have hung on the wall, or a paper stand-up advertising mm -hmm. countertop sign that would have sold for five thousand uh, dollars ten years ago, which would have been sort of in the middle of the market, now sells for two thousand. But the twenty thousand dollar sign, uh, and the, the one that comes to mind is the uh, there was a marvelous. Uh, pressed steel sign made by um, the Campbell's Tomato Com Soup Company. And this was a, uh, a, uh, a sign that was pressed steel in the shape of an American flag, and it incorporated just cans of tomato soup. And that sign, which was always sort of the icon to collect for uh, an advertising sign, now that's a forty thousand or fifty thousand dollars sign versus a twenty thousand dollars sign. So uh, to hear you say that this is one thing that's increasing in value is very interesting. Yeah, I, I think as 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 a typical as a type of collection like signs or or whatever it is, ash you know ashtrays with graphics on them, whatever as as people start collecting that and it becomes a pop kind of a pop thing the best pieces they all, always will go up in value always that's, rise that's to the what top. we've we're talking about earlier the best pieces are always going to be the best and the other stuff is going to be is going to is going to drop and and anybody can collect that at $20 a piece i would suggest that anybody who collects and thinks they're investing is out of their minds <laughs> And collect what you like. Collect what you like and what you want to live with. But if you think you're buying something that you can, uh, in 30, 10 years, 30 years, I mean, the history of collecting, whether it's the, the pre-1930s uh, passion for portrait portraiture, which was rapidly collected by many important collectors, and when the uh, in the 1930s, the bottom fell out of that market and has never recovered. I mean, people spent lots of money for Gainsboroughs and things of that sort. They've never regained where they were. I mean, you can follow somebody like Bouguereau, who was the most highly paid living artist of his day, and by 1960s, you could give them away. Now, there may be that painting you would have bought in the 1960s for... Five or six hundred, maybe a thousand dollars is probably worth a million. But I how do you guess it? How do you guess it? And how can you possibly say what you're going to collect is going to be fit some kind of popular image 10, 20 years from now? You know, um, that's it, it, a great point. And um, the, the idea that it, it, it is possible to buy and make money in this business, in, in, if you collect. But you have to collect at the very, very top. Because I think that when you collect at the very top, the, 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 the chances are much better that if you're spending a million dollars for a Bouguereau, um, that in ten, for a great Bouguereau, that in 10 years that Bouguereau is going to be worth $1.3 million. 
But most of us uh, who are collectors can't collect like that. We don't have the money to do it. That's very true. And I, f- I find in my business today, particularly because the, um, in my mind, the, the, the collecting in America is, uh, by and large, a post-World War II phenomenon. Uh, I think that it began with the greatest generation uh, and then uh, was accelerated by the baby boomers. Well, the greatest generation, they're almost gone, uh, and now the baby boomers, who really were driving the collecting, and, and it's across every collective collecting uh, market, uh, the baby boomers are retiring and downsizing, and they're coughing up all this stuff that they collected throughout the 70s, 80s, and particularly in the 90s when they really started driving prices up, I find and my staff finds that we spend more time managing people's expectations <laughs> about what yeah. their stuff is worth than I ever possibly thought this, that we could. What do you mean I paid $20,000 for this Queen Anne Highboy and you're telling me that it's worth 3000 yeah, that's what it's worth today. People don't want it. But the other side of it is I don't feel, particularly in the household furniture, I've bought things that I enjoy being around, I don't see much of it in the market that I feel like I could go out and replace it. I mean, I see it sporadically in the market, but I don't have the feeling that I see it with the uh, the quantity that I did in the 70s or 80s or 90s. I think you have two things going on. Yeah, if we're going back to that, the psychology of collecting and whatever that is that drives people to collect and investing in, in collecting are two completely separate things. They're not even tied together. I mean, one's, emo- one's emotional and one's rational. And whenever you try to explain an emotional thing with a rational reason or vice versa, it's not going to happen. So, I mean, I, I think that's what's going on. So, again, like you said, collect what you like. Well, you know, I think that there are uh, plenty of irrational collectors with a lot of money. And, um, and that's they, a lot of ego and stuff, they, too. <laughs> they become, um, and, and they become very passionate about what they collect. And they're able to afford... Uh, to collect just about anything, and those are the those are the handful of people who are breathing the ether at the uh, or breathing the oxygen at the very top, who really drive the market and really um, make the headlines when their objects sell uh, in uh, New York or in Cincinnati for a lot of money. Um, but those people are just as passionate about what they collect. They just have deeper pockets. Well, what's the connection on on the ego and the collect and collecting? And I paid. I mean, I you know my little realm of pop art, what commercial art I hear. Yeah, I paid this amount for that, and and they're they're bragging that they're paying this amount for that. Well, I, would, I think. I, 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 listen, I agree, I, and I think that you've probably seen plenty of these people too. That there are there are there's a. At least in my mind, there's a, a range of variability along the line of people that buy things and acquire things 
from people who I refer to as accumulators who really have no sense of, of what they're doing. They're just you know, buying willy-nilly to people who are very focused collectors who uh, have the one uh, trait that the accumulator doesn't, and that's discipline to you know, say, here's a great deal, but I, I don't collect that. I collect you know, maps of the Trans-Mississippi West that were made between 1820 and 1840, and I don't collect anything else. But within that narrow range, I'm going to buy the best and everything that I can find. Uh, to people who have a lot of money uh, at, the, at the opposite extreme, who, um, who view these objects as great trophies. And, um, and uh, then at that same end, there are people who, are, uh, who have a lot of money who, in particular, I see this, in the, I think, in the contemporary art market, people who are buying this stuff because they have a lot of money and they, they think that it's going to be a good investment. So they're rolling the dice and they've got the money to roll. But there are plenty of people that have to have something because it's a trophy. I think that's a perfect, that's what I was talking about. And they have no soul. They have I no, wasn't able to come up with that word, but that's exactly what that is. Yeah. It's, a, it's a trophy. Well, and it's got this price tag. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, a good friend of mine, Charles Floshman, and his collections mostly came to the art museum. And his philosophy of collecting was that he lived, a wealthy man, lived in a house with beautiful furniture, paintings and things like that. He collected portrait miniatures, and that was his collection. The other stuff were simply furnishings. Uh, some of it was very good, but that portrait miniature collection, which is here in this art museum, was carefully curated by him. It was bought, it was vetted by, he wouldn't admit it, but he had an enormously great eye, one of the he, he knew the field probably better than most of the experts, but he relied on experts also. And they would go through and he would sell, buy and sell because he would trade it up to get to the level that he wanted. And the reason that he bought portrait miniatures, he told me, was because when he started collecting, he could afford them. If he wanted to buy old masters, he couldn't have afforded it. But this was something that he could collect, that he could enjoy, and he could get the best of what was there. And he and, and Skip was very, very focused. Absolutely. And had great discipline. Absolutely. Well, we do have some time for questions from the audience. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned um, collect what you love as kind of a rule to follow. Are there any other rules or recommendations that you would make for people who aspire to become a Well, you know, the, the other half of that used to be collect what you love and collect what the, the best that you can afford. Um, and, and I think, I, I suppose that that rule still holds. Um, you know, one of the things we haven't talked about is um, the, the time that we live in now. There are more choices for people to buy things now at great prices. And so the, 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 the adage of buy what you can afford is sort of it's a moving target now, and it's not going up. Great things can be purchased for 
really modest sums now relative to where they were 10 years ago. But I think that um, the, the other, the other uh, thing that I would advise any collector is before you jump into any collecting area, um, find out as much as you can about what you're buying, what you're interested in. Visit museums, talk to people, you know, go to shows where they, uh, you know, they're knowledgeable dealers that can serve as a, a mentor to you. And um, find out all you can about what you really like. Then write your check. <laughs> Do each of you have a piece that got away? That you just are like, oh, I would have loved to have had that. Um, I uh, was I was at a flea market and antique show in Indianapolis, and um, plastic signs are not particularly collectible. People want neon and porcelain enamel neon, and I saw this plastic sign, and uh, it was it was uh, late late forties, in really good shape, hard to find, and I saw I said, oh, there's not going to be anyone that's going to want that sign. I'll come back. And I came back 10 minutes later, and it was gone. And, and I, so I have this, I learned the hard way, which is the only way I learned. I'm not sure about anybody else. But if you see something and, and that's what you want, then don't, then seal the deal right now. I learned that. I have actually found that sign again, but only one side of the sign was in good condition. And I went ahead and bought it, hoping to find the other side of the sign sometime. So that's I think you were talking about lessons learned. That's I've learned lessons the hard way, and that was one I learned. Hopefully, it doesn't S seize the moment, or I guess. Hopefully, it doesn't still haunt you too much. I remembered it. I still remember <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah, you recalled that very quickly. <laughs> you know, over the years, I've had many heartbreaks, and uh, there's not there's not one in particular that uh, that um, that I can point to that I just say, you know. It just breaks my heart that I didn't buy that, that I didn't get that thing. But, you know, let's face it, I'm in a business where I see thousands, we sell 15,000 things on an annual basis. So I see lots of great things, and I can't have them all, and I, re came, to, I came to recognize that very quickly. Um, but the, the, to your point, the uh, years ago when I started collecting, uh, this would have been in the late 70s when I was just becoming enamored of these these magical stereo view cards uh, I can remember uh, and this was at a time when a hundred dollars was a lot of money to buy one stereo view card and I remembered uh, remember uh, talking to a dealer who's a very advanced dealer and a, and a great great guy and a great connoisseur of these things He's, I said God this is a hundred dollars I don't have a hundred dollars he said Buy it. You will never regret it. You will never see it again. So buy it. And uh, that's, that's great advice. If you like it, buy it. Because if, it's, if it rings your bell, you may not ever see it again. Well, there's always the issue, though, of not, not being able to afford it. <laughs> I can remember back as a, as a student, maybe in the late 60s, there was a uh, main auction had a Big Frankenstein painting. Frankenstein. I'm not sure which Godfrey of the brothers. Yes, one of the brothers. And it was 
a painting that was about eight feet wide, six or seven feet high, portrait of a family. And I don't know why I would have, would have ever done with it. But in any case, it sold for under $200. Um, and I didn't really have $200 to spend. Uh, Alice, Phyllis Weston bought it, hung in her front hall for years and years and years. Well, only to bug you, right? Yeah. Only yeah. to <laughs> bug you. <laughs> Taunting me. Well, if that's it, thank you so much, gentlemen. I thought this was... Oh, we have one more question. Great. I guess this is mainly for Wes, but in the auction business, do you frequently see items that are just, your estimates are way off, um, either too high or too low? Uh, I asked that question because Skinner had a musical instrument auction this past weekend, and there was one, most of the uh, instruments and other things sold for prices that were reasonably comparable to their estimates. But there was one half-size violin that they estimated at thirty to fifty dollars that sold for twenty-three thousand dollars, and one bow they estimated for a hundred dollars that sold for twelve thousand. So, is that how frequently does that type of thing? Occur? Well, I, I, you know, I, it's funny that you ask that because I, over the over the years, have have really tried to um, tried to put my arms around the pre-sale auction estimate. And, uh, you know, it, it's always a trick because uh, the, the estimates are based in large part upon prior sales. Um, you know, okay, Skinner sold this uh, very similar thing for $1,500. They'd estimated it $1,000 to $2,000, came right in the middle. So we should estimate that $1,000 to $2,000. And uh, lo and behold, the day of the sale sells for 800. Um, so th there's that, you know, you, you try to do some research to come up with a pre-sale estimate. Um, for some things, it's very difficult. The, the, the more unique it becomes, it's just sort of, okay, what are we going to, let's just pull it right out of the air. Um, but over the years, um, and I've found this consistently across uh, categories, that if you try to play the game of estimating based upon research, you will find that about a third of the things sell for below the low, below your low estimate, about a third of the things sell within the estimate, and about a third of the things sell above the, above the high estimate. So the, 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 the uh, great luxury that, and it's the auctioneer's sort of you know, great dream, is to have uh, a collection where the owner says, you know, I just want it to sell. I don't care what it sells for, and you can put any sort of estimate on that you, on it that you want. And in the past few years, uh, we have sold some great local collections of Americana that were in the States, and, uh, uh, you know, I knew that that thing was going to sell for $1,000, and I estimated $100 to $200, and it sold for $1,100. But uh, that doesn't happen very often. Most people who have 
you know, property want you to give them an idea of what it's going to sell for. And, and, it's, and it's pretty remarkable. It's about a third under, third in the middle, third above, when you start to try to do that. Well, thank you so much, gentlemen, for chatting with us tonight. I thought this was really interesting. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Art Palace. We hope you'll come visit the Cincinnati Art Museum and have conversations about the art yourself. General admission to the museum is always free, and we also offer free parking. Special exhibitions on view right now are William Kentridge, More Sweetly Play the Dance, Tiffany Glass, Painting with Color and Light, The Poetry of Place, William Clift, Linda Connor, and Michael Kenna. A program that might interest you is a Skype session with Ralph Stedman on Sunday, June 11th at 12 p.m., which is presented by Artworks. This is a free public Skype session with world-renowned illustrator Ralph Stedman, who will be tuning in from his studio in England. You might know Ralph Stedman from his famous illustrations for Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. This event is free and reservations are not required. For program reservations and more information, visit CincinnatiArtMuseum.org. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and even Snapchat. Our theme song is Offrande Musicale by Bacalao. And as always, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Are you sure? I'm Russell Eyrig, and this has been Art Palace, produced by the Cincinnati Art Museum.